welcome. We have been uh, in the book of Galatians uh, for a couple of months now as we have walked through this uh, really just powerful, wonderful book, um, verse by verse, if you will, section by section. We only have a couple more weeks today and actually next Sunday morning we will conclude uh, the book of Galatians and we have titled the series that we um, uh, are the series through the book of Galatians as Set Free, Live Free. The first about four chapters or so of the book of Galatians, Paul is uh, explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he is explaining the greatest consequence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, namely that you and I have been set free from ourselves and from our sin. And now in chapters 5 and 6, Paul is explaining how it is that we are to live out that newfound freedom that we have been given in Jesus Christ. We've specifically been uh, in the section that began back in chapter 5, verse 13, a few weeks ago. And this morning, I actually want to start off um, by reading through this uh, passage of Scripture, all of these verses that we've, been looked, that we've looked at, because the verses that we'll be looking at specifically, verses six, or chapter 6, verse 7 through 10, is the conclusion of this broader argument that Paul has been making. So look with me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 13, and let's read down through 6, verse 10 together. Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
Would you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, I acknowledge my own inadequacy to effectively communicate the beauty of your word. My desperate dependence upon you to do in me and through me what I can't do myself. So Heavenly Father, I pray in this time together, as we have opened your word and read your word, Holy Spirit, just as you inspired Paul to write these words so many years ago, to a people, Heavenly Father, prone to deception, I pray, Heavenly Father, that this morning you would open our eyes to our own weaknesses, to our own faults and failures, to the own, our own ways, Heavenly Father, that we look to ourselves instead of to others, instead of to you, first and foremost. And I pray that instead we would embrace a pattern of selfless love that sows to the Spirit that we might reap joy and everlasting life, that we might grow up in our relationship with you, grow in our dependence and our trust in you, grow in our generosity and our love for others, for your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Hopefully, as I read those verses, you can see how Paul has kind of, in these last few verses or so, Paul has looped back around, if you will. A few weeks ago, we looked at the, the battle that exists between the flesh and the Spirit and the works of the Spirit that Paul laid out in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 and 21. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit that has to be cultivated in our lives. And then last week we looked at this reality that God has created us as a community of believers that are each one individually accountable for the lives that we live, but we're mutually responsible to the Lord for one another, that we are to move to each other, we're to love each other. The whole section is governed by the commands that Paul gives back in verse 13, the negative command, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for your flesh, and the positive command, through love, serve one another. And in chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, Paul returns to that notion of the, the battle between the flesh and the spirit. He returns to that agricultural language, and he returns to that command to love and to do good to everyone. But it's important that as he brings this to a conclusion, before he heads into the conclusion for the larger letter, he gives us a specific command that I think exposes the reality of each and every one of our lives because verse 7 opens with this clear negative command, do not be deceived. It's easy for us to live our lives, especially in the culture that we are in today, where we have so much information at our fingertips that we can become proud and arrogant and think that we're untouchable by deception, that we can do what we, we want to do, that we can find anything out there. And so we have a tendency to, to live our lives in this posture, in this place of, of I can do just about anything. I got this. All it takes is a quick YouTube search and it'll show me every step that I need to do and I can fix whatever this is. We think the same thing relationally. We think the same thing socially. We think the same thing spiritually. I've been in church a while or long enough or my entire life. 
I've sat under faithful teachers, and so I, I know what I need to know, and I'm, I'm not vulnerable. But what does the Scripture say? It says pride comes before the fall. And Paul is writing to a group of Galatian Christians scattered around a whole region. It's not one specific church who have been deceived by false teachers who have come in and proclaimed a false gospel. The gospel that says you need Jesus and these patterns of behavior. Jesus and circumcision. Jesus and the law. Jesus and certain ceremonies and celebrations. Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by others and don't be deceived by yourselves. And what he is explaining to us is you and I are each and every one prone to deception. But the most vulnerable that we are is not from deception outside of ourselves, but it's a deception inside of ourselves. As we listen to patterns and lies in our own hearts and our own lives, Lies that we tell ourselves all of the time and what we need is we need the truth of the gospel that ultimately sets us free. And I think as Paul begins to work through this after he has given this clear command, do not be deceived, he begins in positive statements to expose some specific lies that you and I have to believe or have tend to believe when it comes to living a life by the Spirit. Paul says, do not be deceived, and he immediately goes into this next command, God is not mocked. I think the negative or the the lie that Paul explains right there is that we oftentimes tend to believe, the lie that we tend to believe is God doesn't see me, or God doesn't really seem to be connected or to care. Now, most of us as good Bible-believing Christians in this room, we would never actually say that out loud, but the truth of the matter is the way that we live our lives is patterned after this notion that nobody sees me, not even God. What I do in secret is myself, and my, is, is my sin, it's my problem, and we live as though God is not actually ever present all of the time. When David sinned against Bathsheba, When David sinned against Uriah, he's the king who's supposed to be somewhere. He stands, but he's not with his soldiers in battle. He stands out on the parapet of his castle and he sees Bathsheba naked and he wants her and he takes her and then he keeps her by killing her husband. And yet when we find Psalm 51, which is David's confession... And is turning from his sin, what does he say in Psalm 51? Says, against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. David understands that the very first person that he has sinned against is God himself. Yes, that's not to say that he hadn't sinned against Bathsheba. It's not to say that he hadn't sinned against his wife. It's not to say that he hadn't sinned against his people and his kingdom and his soldiers. He had done all of those things. But Paul understood God is not just some far-off God... God is a personal God who is present. And we oftentimes tend to believe that we can do certain things and that God will just let it slip. And God will let it slide. But the answer to that lie that you and I tend to believe that Paul says is God is not mocked. God's not blind. God's not deaf. God's not dead. God is intimately aware of not only the things that we do, but the desires deep down inside of our heart that give birth to it to begin with. 
God's not shocked by your sin or mine. God's not caught off guard. The omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God of the universe sees and knows and understands and he does care. And God in his power and in his sovereignty has created this world in such a way that this world functions according to order instead of chaos, which is why Paul says God's not mocked, and then he gives the reason for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. I love science teachers who try to explain to their kids and their students that the scientific method works, right? I, I, I come up with a hypothesis, and then I test my hypothesis, because if my hypothesis is right, I'm going to get a certain reaction, and it's going to be repeatable, correct? It's based on the assumption that the world works according to a certain order, and yet they turn around with the very next voice, and they say, but the world's just out of chaos. It's created out of chaos. That's not what Scripture teaches us. That God in His magnitude and His infinitude is nevertheless a God who is concerned with the details of this world and He's created it in such a way that one plus one always equals two. Why is math a testimony to the glory of God? Because God created the world to function a certain way. And in the Spirit and in our relationships, what God says right here is that there are consequences to your actions. This principle of sowing and reaping is crucial, and our society understands it. They just call it by the, same na- the wrong name. What our world loves to think about is the idea of karma. Have you heard karma? What goes around comes around, but the truth of the matter is, that's not what karma actually teaches. Karma is a specific theological belief from Eastern religions that pro- proclaims the things that I do in this life don't just determine what happens to me here and now, but happens to me in the next life and determines what I come back as. And if I'm bad in this life, I might show up as a dung beetle in the next one. And if I'm good in this life, then I'm able to come up to another and higher class, which is why you go to certain areas of the world and they genuinely believe that to do good to a person that is in pain, to do good to a person that is living in a dump, is actually an act of hatred to that individual because they believe they're suffering in this life so that they might then get a reward in the next one. And if you step in and intervene, you mess up the cosmic process. That's karma. The biblical principle is you reap what you sow. And it is all throughout Scripture. Hosea is the one who says they sow to the wind and they reap the whirlwind. And God has created this principle of sowing and reaping because God is intimately aware of what is going on in our lives. He is intimately concerned about what is going on in our lives. And there are consequences to our actions. And what we sow determines what we reap. The verse in Hosea says, not only does it determine what we reap, but it determines a quantity that comes back, right? You sow a corn kernel in the ground, inevitably what comes out? A stalk that has many different ears of corn. So you sow one seed, you get thousands potentially back. And the corn that goes into the ground doesn't produce an apple tree. 
And so God says right here, through Paul and through his spirit, he says the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap what? The only thing that flesh does, die. Corruption. The consequence of the life that we live is we sow seeds of discord and enmity, sorcery, idolatry, sensuality, impurity, sexuality, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, those types of things that Paul has listed and labeled as works of the flesh. What do we get? The only thing that flesh can do, die. That's the picture of corruption. It is decaying flesh is what is the word picture under that word that Paul uses here. And so it shouldn't shock us that when we live lives as a pattern of selfishness and sin, that what we get is chaos in our lives. What we get is destruction of relationships. What we get is the breakdown of unity. But to sow to the Spirit, we get eternal life. And let's just be real clear on this for a second. When Paul says we get eternal life, he's not just talking about life that goes on forever. That is part of it. But when the Bible talks about that we get eternal life, it's not just talking about, oh, I get to be immortal forever. No, eternal life is the culmination of all of the promises of Scripture. That I get life, which is God, who is the giver of life, who is the source of all life, who is the one who sustains all life. I get God. I get this everlasting, joyful life because I receive a relationship with God, first and foremost. Heaven's not heaven if God's not there. It's just an eternity of nothingness. God is what makes heaven heaven. God is not mocked. He does care. He has functioned the world to function in a certain way. A second lie that we tend to believe, though, that comes out of these verses is the lie that oftentimes says, I'm not the real problem. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, God shows up on the scene after Adam and Eve have rebelled and they have disobeyed and God comes to Adam and he asks him a very simple question. Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? That's a pretty simple question, right? That's a yes or no. And what does Adam do? You see, God, what happened was that woman that you gave me, she gave to me, and then I ate. It finally gets down to the the, the crux of the matter. Yeah, I ate. But the tendency from Adam and all the way down is to qualify our disobedience. See, God, I'm not really the problem. If she hadn't, I wouldn't. If he would just, I would. If they, then I. They need to get themselves right, and then I can get myself right. Now, it's very true that because of the world that we live in and the presence of sin, that things happen in your life and in my life that are the very real consequences of someone else's sin against me. That's suffering. My suffering in this life comes from, most often, the presence of sin in this world. Disease, death, destruction, abuse. 
And sometimes you and I bear the scars of somebody else's sin against us. That is absolutely true. What Paul is confronting, though, is the reality that you and I bear scars that are the consequences of our own misdeeds and disobedience and rebellion against God. And we are responsible for those. We tend to believe that other people are the problem, but God says the one who sows is the one who reaps. You reap what you sow. If you sow to your own flesh and to your own selfishness, then you are going to get corruption. There is going to be consequences to your actions, and that is what we understand to be the discipline of God. People oftentimes tend to believe the lie that God is out to get me, that God is punishing me because of all of these problems that are going on in my life, but that's not the picture that Scripture gives to us of God. He's not vindictive out to beat you down and beat you up, but there are very real consequences to the sins that you commit in your life. And God in His love and in His grace will let you experience the consequences of your own sin that you might be disciplined, that you might turn from your sin towards Jesus Christ, trusting in Him to empower you now to an entirely different lifestyle. We saw our tendency to believe the lie that I'm not really the problem last week when we saw that you and I are really quick to see what's wrong in somebody else and really slow to see what's wrong in ourselves. And we can see how to fix somebody else's problem real quick, but we are helpless when it comes to identifying the sin in our, our lives and the path of obedience and submission and repentance that we need to take. I can tell you all day long what Sarah needs to fix and it would just fix our home. And she could probably tell you all day long what I need to do to fix our home. And the truth of the matter is, I reap what I sow, she reaps what we sow, and our family reaps the consequences. You and I are responsible, we saw that last week, individually accountable for ourselves. Mutually responsible to one another that we might help and love and support one another. But the biblical answer to I am not the problem is, yeah, you probably are. And you're the only problem that you have any ability to do anything about. In the marriage counseling ministry that we ran a pilot program on, they have a principle called the, the, the circles and, and your spheres that are there. And you are just supposed to, basically, you draw your, your circle around yourself and you work ferociously on whatever is wrong in the circle and then you trust God with everything outside of the circle. Because the truth of the matter is, I can't compel anyone else. I can only be responsible and accountable for me. Another lie that we tend to believe, however, is that holiness or healing is a transaction. We live in a transactional world. Especially the more and more that we move away from an agricultural society and more and more into an industrial, industrialized society, we've lost the notion of harvest. And we live in this transactional society that says, if I pay X, I get Y. If I do X, I get Y. And if I don't get what I paid for or what I expected, you know what I can do? I can withhold funds. I cannot use that again. I can vote with my feet. I can get on Google and I can leave a nasty review. 
Because we live in this transactional society that says, if I put into this X amount, I should at least get Y amount. We understand the notion of this transactionalism, and we tend to do this relationally. Husbands, friends, wives. We live in this pattern that, hey, I do this. I I did the laundry today. I put it in and I folded it, so you know what? You, You should respond positively, right? Doesn't matter that I didn't do the laundry the last six weeks. And how often do we do nice things, say nice things, make the phone call, deliver the flowers, or do whatever it takes, but the reality is we're not doing it out of a love and a thought for the other person. We're doing it out of the expectation of what we're going to get in the return. Right, guys? Sure, I'll give you the back rub as long as I get something on the other side. Right? We live in this transactional relationship. Not only do we do that relationally and individually, we do it corporately as a church. If we do the program, if we're going to serve this community, if we're going to give generously to these teachers at Glen Ellen Elementary School, what's going to come into it for us? It's an investment, right? If we do it, if we build it, what is the return on our investment? We do it spiritually. God, I read my Bible today. God, I prayed today. God, I gave my tithe this week, or I gave over and above my tithe to Annie Armstrong or to to, to the Glen Ellen Initiative, any of that. And our expectation is that I put in my efforts, therefore, God, you must now give to me. In its most gross sense, you see it on on television all the time from these televangelists who promise you, if you'll just write me a check for $100, God's going to give you a million in the next six months. Right? Because it's an investment in the kingdom of God and in the ministry. And we take this transactional relationship with the Lord that, God, if I do X, what are you going to give me in return? But in commenting on this passage of Scripture, and I believe the the truth that this passage of Scripture speaks against that lie that treats holiness like it's transaction, is John Stott's comment on this passage of Scripture. He says, holiness is a harvest. You see, the thing about a farmer when he puts the seed in the ground and he waters it, he doesn't get to manipulate all of the little steps along the way and make sure that it comes out the way that he wants to. He has to put it in the ground. He has to water it and be faithful in the things that he can do and then completely trust the Lord to do everything else. He doesn't get to get in there and keep digging up the seed and going, okay, are you measuring up and are you doing all of this right? And okay, maybe if I add this little extra and this, he's got to simply at some point trust God to do what only God can do, which is bring the growth. And when it comes to our holiness, when it comes to our lives and the harvest that we are going to reap, the reality is, brothers and sisters, you and I are not in control, either one of the growth or two, the timing. Because isn't that what Paul says here? Let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season. The Greek word there is the term kairos. It is an appointed time. A time that is determined. And you and I, brothers and sisters, are not the ones who get to determine when the growth finally comes. And that can be so disappointing, can it? 
We continue to pour ourselves out over and over and over again. We continue to make investments over and over and over again, and we don't see the growth. We don't see the reward. And that can become exhausting. We can feel like we're beating our heads against the wall. We can feel like we are living the definition of insanity. You know what the definition of insanity is? Doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result. That's insane. But I think about the life of someone like William Carey, who surrendered a call to the Lord as an international missionary, and he went to India where he spent years and years and years plowing the fields in the Spirit, praying and seeking. And it took years before he ever saw his first convert. I think well over a decade of faithful ministry in one place before he ever saw one convert from the Hindu religion. Now when it's all said and done, the faithfulness of his ministry In his time there, God blessed him with tremendous growth. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, you and I are never promised that we will see it. Another person that I think of oftentimes is a man named George Mueller. If you've not heard of George Mueller, I encourage you to find his biography and read it. God did incredible things through this one man who faithfully prayed and gave himself to prayer over and over and over such that he ran and organized and funded orphanages all over England and around the world, a missionary printing effort all around the world, and he did it without ever soliciting a penny from anybody but simply trusting that God would bring the reward. And he had a prayer list of people that he prayed for every single day that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And there were five names on his list that he had prayed for for, I think, nearly 50 years who still hadn't believed on Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and he died. And it was after his death that one by one by one, those five men that he had prayed for for nearly five decades surrendered their life to Christ, even though George Mueller never saw it. The truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, God is the one who not only controls the growth, he is the one who controls the timing. He is ultimately in charge of all of it. And so we have to trust that holiness is a harvest that comes by faithful obedience each and every moment of each and every day. As much as I would love to walk into this platform and have the one silver bullet sermon that would just transform this church right, over, right into something that is booming and growing and reaching our community and effective and, ex- and exploding for God's glory, the fact of the matter is it's probably not going to happen. And all I can do is agree or is determined to faithfully be present here week after week after week. And sometimes I'm going to hit a sermon that's a home run. And sometimes it's going to be a base hit. Because it's building towards something else. Sometimes it's going to be a bunt. Sometimes it's going to be a foul ball. And it's going to go just completely wonky. The tendency of me as a pastor is to put so much pressure on what happens right here. When in reality, it's in those quiet moments. In the way that I lean on the Lord personally first. In the way I lead my family next. 
in the way I disciple each and every one of you as best as I can and equip you for the work of the ministry. Second, this, this is great. But it's not often in the public space. It's in that personal private space. And faithfulness over time that yields fruit. The last lie that we tend to believe is this notion of, well, I just need to focus on me. Now, that may sound like a contradiction to what I said earlier that says it's not about me and I need to understand that it is about me, that I am the one that I can do something about. But my ten- what I'm talking about here is a tendency for you and I to just rule everybody else out and I'm just going to take care of me. If I just take care of me and I just focus everything on me, what ends up happening, though, when we do this is that we live this life with a giant exercise of navel-gazing. I never look up and beyond myself. All I get to see is my needs. All I get to see is my problems. All I get to to see is what I'm doing for me. And what ends up happening out of that is I live this self-centered life where I think my problems are the biggest problems on the universe. My problems are the only problems that actually matter. And we end up right back in that other situation that says, if you would just do this for me, everything would be fine. That's not what Scripture says. Because as we end this passage of Scripture, what Paul says is, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those that are of the household of God. Christian love, brothers and sisters, always drives us to other people. If you have a Bible study, if you have a discipleship meeting, If you have a relationship and you spend time in God's Word and you don't walk away with a focus on someone else, who can I share this with? Who do I need to to go and approach and ask for forgiveness? Or who do I need to go and help because that brother or that sister, according to chapter 6, verse 1, is caught in some transgression and I am called by God as one who is walking by the Spirit to go to them and show them Christian love and bear a burden with them. If we stop focusing on our, by simply ending by focusing on ourselves, we've missed the entire point of Scripture as God is always refocusing ourselves from us to those that are around us, such that sowing to the Spirit looks like serving other people. It looks like loving other people, especially those who are of the household of faith, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Seeing them, loving them, serving them, meeting needs, bearing burdens, helping in times of distress and even in sin. Love drives us outward. And so if these are lies that we tend to believe, and Paul addresses them, and he calls us to something better, he calls us to sowing and reaping, sowing to the Spirit and reaping from the Spirit by doing good to others. How then do we take this and we turn these around? As we believe these truths that God sees, God cares, that I sow what I reap, that it's going to take time and patience, that it's going to move outward. What does this look like in our lives? First thing I think that we must turn from ourselves and we have to crucify the flesh. That's what Paul has been saying for several verses. Throughout most of this chapter and the chapter before is that we must crucify the flesh. Right? Chapter 5, 
Verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. What is the flesh? The works of the flesh are evident, he says. It's living for yourself. It's living for your own pleasure. It's living for you no matter the cost to your relationships and anybody else. It's living a life that doesn't believe or trust in the Lord to bring to you his good gifts in his good times. And so I'm going to do whatever is necessary to take it. I'm going to position myself in the body. I'm going to position myself in my workforce. I'm going to position myself in my home to get me and mine. Isn't that what all of the works of the flesh are ultimately rooted in? Sexual immorality is all about me. I don't care that I am destroying the image of God in somebody else as I look at porn, as I demean them in whatever that may be. I don't care about them. I'm for me. Moving out of just porn but into sexual sin and lust and sensuality and impurity and everything else, I'm destroying that person taking for me what is mine. And then and corporately as it breaks down in all of these other areas, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, I don't get my way, so I'm going to respond by lashing out because after all, the louder I get, the, for, the fiercer I get, the more violent I get, the more likely it is that they are going to submit. And I'm going to get my way. Instead of trusting in the Lord, I turn to idolatry. I reject him for who he is and how he's revealed himself. I turn to creation, sorcery, to manipulate the world around me to get the things that I want, that I deem as a priority. And when I face brokenness, what do I do? I turn towards whatever will numb my experience, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That is what Paul has condemned, and that is what we must reject. And it's not enough, brothers and sisters, to sit in this room right here and right now and say, yeah, I get it, I reject it. It's about waking up tomorrow and saying, God, I don't want to sow to the flesh anymore. What does crucifying the flesh look like? It starts with a simple prayer. God, would you show me the ways that I am living selfishly? God, would you show me the ways that I am sowing to my own flesh that then is growing out corruption in my marriage, in my workplace, in my society, in my church? Would you show me the works of the flesh that I am giving over to that I might reject it altogether? And that is a day in, day out, moment by moment, living and sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit that says, would you show it to me? But it's not just enough to be willing to see it. We have to hate it. We have to have God's heart for our sin. That I despise my sin more than I love whatever pleasure it may give to me. Whatever power it may provide for me. Whatever prominence it may grant me. I hate my sin because it is defiant. And defiance and rebellion against a holy God who loves me fiercely. Well, we must not only turn from our flesh, there's got to turn somewhere, and so we've got to turn and trust first and foremost in the God who controls and governs both life and growth. As we saw here, God is the one who's in control. He's not mocked. He's the one who gives spiritual life. He's the one, God the Father, is the one who authored the plan of salvation long before the beginning of time. 
Before He created you and me, before He created the world that he, we exist in, God was aware and knew and knew the need for a plan for salvation, and it's God the Father who authored it. There's a lie that ten, people tend to believe that says God the Father is the angry God and Jesus Christ is the loving God who comes and he fixes and he satiates the anger of the Father so that you and I might experience love. And that is such a lie and a, an attack on the very character and heart of God. Because it's the Father who is the one who authored the plan of salvation first. It's the Father that we find out, God of the Old Testament, that He comes to Moses and He says in Exodus, He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to the thousandth generation. That's the God who authored our life and sent the Son that we might receive the life. And He is the one who grants the growth. All of our best efforts in this life to put the right inputs in and be in the right location and everything else, that's great. And there are certain things that we must do in our lives in active obedience as we take steps of faith because after all, James is going to tell us faith without works is what? Dead. So there is a realm where we are called to obey and step out in obedience. But what's the thing? God brings the growth. It's not a simple A plus B equals C transaction all of the time. We have to trust in God and in His time and in His time alone and not in ourselves and our own strength. Finally, not only must we turn to God and trust in the giver of life who governs our growth, we also have to turn to Jesus and so to the Spirit, and that looks like loving others in service. Because after all, isn't that exactly the pattern in the life of Jesus Christ? Jesus didn't merely see us far off and in our pain and in our anguish and in our sin. What did he do? He stepped down that he might love us by what? Serving us. This baby that we celebrate in this time is not the baby who came to be worshipped and enthroned. He didn't come in a display of power and prominence. He came in an act of humility, vulnerability, to seek and save the lost, that he might, what, serve us? That's what love looks like. Love doesn't look like demanding to be served. Love doesn't look like living for me and mine. Love looks like seeing others selflessly. Love, by its very nature, is a sacrifice. And that's how Jesus loved us. By sacrificing himself that we might be saved. And each and every time that by the power of the Spirit, we live the pattern of Jesus Christ, we sow to the Spirit. And as we follow the pattern of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, what we find is we are planting a harvest, reaping a harvest that looks like fruit that reflects the character of Jesus. And our lives become characterized not by selfishness, but selflessness that looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's looking to Jesus. It's receiving from Jesus the love that I can't create in myself that I then give away because I got it from Him to begin with. That starts small. And it's in those small, faithful steps where I deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Him that God does something great first in me and then through me. How do you need to die to yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus today, tomorrow, next year? I invite you, if you would, take your moment, bow your heads and close your eyes and ask God that question. Because the truth of the matter is, I can do my best, but I can't answer it nearly as perfectly as he can. Spend a moment in prayer, seeking his face, and I'll come back and close this in a moment.